which the title of the message this morning is Doctrines That Shook the World, Sola Fide. Doctrines That Shook the World, Sola Fide. Our text this morning, I want to encourage you to go ahead and be opening your Bible, is Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. I'm going to give you a little bit of historical context here to set the message up, uh, and then we're going to read our text, and we're going to actually back up a little bit. We're, we're going to exposit, or, or the bulk of our sermon this morning will be contained to verses 27 through 31, but we're going to read together this morning verses 21 through 31. Okay? Let me seek to put the doctrine of sola fide, within its Reformation context, and to help you see why it is such a big deal, why it is a pivotal, crucial doctrine that we must hold to. You see, the firestorm of the Reformation was waged over doctrinal issues. The word doctrine just means teaching. The firestorm of the Reformation was waged over teaching issues, over doctrinal issues of God's Word. If you can remember back two weeks ago, we began our study through the five solas or the five alones. That's what what sola means in front of each of the uh, the, uh, Reformation uh, doctrines. It means alone or only or solely. As we began our study through the five solas, we began by looking at sola scriptura or scripture alone. This, as pastors, teachers, theologians have have noted, was the formal cause of the Reformation. That was the pinnacle issue of who has authority, who speaks with authority, where do we look to look for the authoritative, sufficient Word of God. And in that sense, sola scriptura was the formal cause of the Reformation. Martin Luther and the reformers that followed after him began to see an ever-increasing shift away from or a divergence from the sufficiency and the authority of God's written, revealed word. You see, the issue was that the Catholic Church, of which Luther was a part, put the traditions of the church and the councils of men on the same level as the revealed word of God. They believed the authority of Scripture, the Roman Catholic Church. They just also believed that church leaders, popes, and councils, that the word of men, the traditions of the church, set on an equally level foundation. Matter of fact, they taught and still teach papal infallibility. That is, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, which is Latin for from his chair, that he is preserved from the possibility of error. He speaks authoritatively. They wouldn't stop there, though. they They would go on and say that not only does the Pope speak infallibly when he speaks ex cathedra or from his chair, but that he can communicate new divine revelation. In other words, Scripture is not sufficient in its canon, in its, in its contained books, 66 books, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, but that God is still speaking today and he's speaking through the Pope. These are the issues that, that, that came to light in Luther's day and that Luther began to see as, as being a discrepancy as held against the Word of God alone. 
Luther saw this as a departure from the authority and the sufficiency of God's word. God has the first word, God will have the final word, and God has every word in between. And friends, let me remind you, God is his own interpreter. Okay? Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Last week we learned about the second sola. That's sola gratia, or solely, or only grace, or grace alone. Again, Luther and the Reformers understood salvation as being a work of God's sovereign grace. Grace, we talk about this from time to time, but it's good to be reminded. Grace, by its very definition, is receiving something that is not owed. Something that is not due to us. Sin, which we're all culpable, plunges us into spiritual death. Paul reminds us that. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin, what is due to us, what we will be paid, what we have earned, the wages of sin is death. Death is what we've earned. We're all born physically alive but spiritually dead. We need, uh, just as Jesus told Nicodemus, to be born again. And it is a wonderful, glorious display of God's sovereign grace that he would condescend himself, in a sense, to awaken any dead sinner to new life in Christ. And the fact that God does that is a display of his grace. It's unmerited. It's not owed. It's not due to us in any way. The fact that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us is a glorious display of God's sovereign grace. Sola gratia. By grace alone. Well, if sola scriptura was the formal cause of the Protestant Reformation, if it was the pinnacle issue, where does authority come from? Then sola fide, the third of the solas that we'll take up this morning, on the other hand, was the material cause of the Reformation. The formal cause was who has authority? Where do we look for authority? We look to God's word alone. But as we look to God's word alone, God's word and God's word alone answers life's greatest question. Namely, how can a sinful man or a sinful woman be made right with a holy God? That's the question that the Reformation sought to answer. The central issue was where does authority come from? Because we have to know where authority comes from to answer the pinnacle question, which was how does sinful man be reconciled to a thrice holy God? That's the context with which the firestorm of the Reformation is swirling. The answer, how can a sinful person be made right with God, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to the glory of God Almighty and God singularly. God alone. The Reformation was waged over the question of justification by faith, But even further than that, justification by faith alone. You see, the Roman Catholic Church had no problem with this sentence. Justification is by faith. The issue came when we added the word alone. That justification or being declared righteous is on the grounds of faith, but faith alone. That was the issue. It was the sola of sola fide. 
was the central issue and the central dispute between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. You see, the Roman Catholic view is and has been this, that a person is justified by faith, but it's not sola. It's not faith alone. It's faith plus your merit. It's faith plus your works. It's, it's faith with the addition of you. In other words, you bring something to the table, and you add that together with, or you marry that together with faith and justification, or being declared righteous before God is the result. The Reformers, on the other hand, and the Protestant view, the view that we would hold as being biblically correct, accurate, theologically accurate, is that a person is justified by faith and faith alone. That's faith plus nothing. There is no equation. The equation is itself faith alone. That is the Protestant view. That is the view that we hold to. The theological term that we would speak of here is that of imputed righteousness. The difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church had to do with their view of righteousness. The Protestant church, which is where we are and what we would hold to, is that righteousness is imputed. In other words, we have a spiritually bankrupt account. And if there is to be any righteousness, it must be imputed or it must be credited to our otherwise bankrupt account. We have nothing with which to spend. There are no funds within the account. We're bankrupt. Unless Jesus steps in, justifies us by faith, declares us innocent, guilty, upon the basis of his finished and completed work on Calvary's cross alone, then we have no righteousness. In that sense, we would say that righteousness is foreign to us, or righteousness is alien to us. Now let me juxtapose this with the Roman Catholic view. If the Protestant view of righteousness is that it's imputed righteousness. The Roman Catholic view is that of infused righteousness. And this isn't just a, a matter or an issue uh, that, 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 that has to do with mere semantics. There is a critical distinction between the, the Catholic view of, of infused righteousness and the Protestant view of imputed righteousness. Here's the main problem at the end of the day. What the Roman Catholic Church has done is to confuse the process of sanctification. That's our growth in Christ's likeness, which begins the moment that we're converted. It begins the moment of regeneration, and it, and, it, and it moves on through life, and it's concluded the day that we breathe life's final breath. It's the process of sanctification, or the process of Christian or spiritual growth that takes place in the Christian life after we uh, have been born again, like Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 7. Okay? What the Catholic Church has done, unfortunately, and, and to make a critical error, is to confuse justification and sanctification. In other words, you, you have some semblance of righteousness in you. And what God does by his grace is he, he just comes as you work, and he just kind of adds to the account. You see the problem there? That makes... That makes righteousness intrinsic to you, abiding within you already, instead of making righteousness 
foreign or alien. If I have it, it has to come from the outside in. Whereas the Catholic Church would say you already have some of it, Jesus comes along in some sense and adds to it by his work on the cross. And so what you'll find as you read uh, Protestant Reformation literature is that oftentimes there's a lot of similarity in vocabulary between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. The issue comes when we begin to define the vocabulary. That's where the issue comes to play. We hold that a person is justified by faith and faith alone. Well, with that as some Reformation context, let me encourage you to stand this morning as we read God's word. Again, our study will confine us to verses 27 through 31, but we're going to back up a handful of verses. We'll read this morning verses 21 through 31. This is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, these are the words that he pens. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. That means the playing field is level. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous or innocent by His grace as a gift. It's grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a satisfaction by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's our text for this morning. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow this law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Three main points on your outline this morning. Pen in hand, here's number one. The doctrine of justification by faith alone strips us, strips us bare of any semblance of pride. The doctrine of justification by faith alone strips us of our pride. Let your eyes fall back down to your Bible. Look at verse 27, chapter 3, verse 27. Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? 
No, but by the law of faith. Now, in these final or in these concluding verses of Romans chapter 3, specifically verses 21 through 31, which we just read, Paul, in my opinion, clearly and convincingly and powerfully teaches that our justification, which just means our right standing with God, means more than that, but it doesn't mean less than that. Our right standing with God comes not by our own works, not by our own merit, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faith plus nothing. Faith alone. Now, let's talk about that term justification for just a moment. Justification is a legal term. It's a courtroom term. It's a judicial term that means to be declared righteous or to be declared innocent before God. Now, here's a distinction that we need to make. To be justified does not mean that you are innocent. It does not mean that I am innocent. If we were innocent, there would be no need to be justified. Prior to the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, there was no need for justification. Justification became necessary when sin plunged man into spiritual death. When it tore asunder, when it ripped apart the relationship between the divine and his creation, between God and man. Then justification became necessary. Then there became a need to be declared innocent, to be declared not guilty, to be declared right before God. And that's exactly what he, do, what he does. He declares us to be, not because we are, but because of what Christ has done. He declares us to be in Christ, covered by his righteousness, standing in his shed blood alone, declares us to be, not because of our own merit, but, but because of the merit of another, to be justified. Innocent. Guilty. Justification has to do with how God deals with both the offense of our sin and the guilt of our sin. Justification has to do with, with, with how God deals with the offense of our sin and the guilt of our sin. You see, two things are necessary to be right with God. One, punishment for our sin, right? For all have sinned. And then Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Two things that we need. We, we, we need punishment to be paid for our sin, and then we need perfection for our lives. Both of those two are met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus hung naked and alone on Calvary's cross, he hung there as the punishment for sin. And he hung there as the perfection for those who would come to him by faith alone. All of his merit, all of his righteousness, all of his perfection credited to our otherwise bankrupt account. That's justification. That we were declared guiltless because he was declared guilty on our behalf. What a sacrificial substitute we have in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul reminds us, if you look just 
back before the text that we began reading, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, everyone, all have turned aside together, they become worthless, no one does good, not even one. That verse and that verse alone, or those two verses, absolutely would condemn Rome's understanding of infused righteousness, because no one's good. Do you know what no one means, by the way? It means no one. I mean, God is not trying to trick us. He's not trying to play with words or to play this semantics game. When God says no one is good, no one is righteous, no, not one, he even repeats the phrase, he means exactly what he said. We need justice or justification, rather, to, to come from Christ and to be imputed to us from him. His righteousness imputed to our otherwise bankrupt accounts. Romans 3, 10 through 12 is the human condition apart from Christ. But thanks be to God that he answers the question of how a sinful person can be made right with God. Paul answers the question, as a matter of fact, in verses 21 through 26, which we read this morning. That righteousness, God's righteousness has been manifest or has been made known apart from the law. Apart from works, apart from our striving, apart from our trying to please and appease God, to work for and earn his favor, there's a righteousness that has been manifest apart from the law. And Paul goes on and he says that the the law and the prophets even bear witness to it. So what he's saying there is your Old Testament just serves to be a, a scarlet arrow down the redemptive road to the Lord Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets point to the fact that justification is by faith and faith alone. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so therefore we need to be justified as a a gift of His grace, to be redeemed in Christ, whom God put forward. God crushed His Son as a propitiation for our sin. Propitiation is one of those words that you need to know. If you endeavor to read Christian literature, which, which I would encourage you to, I, I would commend you to, you're going to come across that word. And it means to, to pay for, to appease, to satisfy. Jesus was a propitiation for our sins. He satisfied God's just, righteous, holy wrath on Calvary's cross. The innocent for the guilty. He paid for it by his blood. And this gift, Paul tells us, is to be received by And so immediately after teaching that our justification is secured by faith in Christ alone, Paul sets his his sights on the issue of boasting. That's where verse 27 picks up here. Now, what is boasting? Boasting is a synonym for pride. Boasting is a synonym for a haughty spirit. It's the external form of the internal condition of pride. You see, pride is the epicenter, or it's the origin of every expression of human sin. Here's what I mean by that. Think of an onion. Onion has layers. And if you peel back the layers of our sin, any given sin, whether it's in thought or deed or action or word, what you will find at its core, what you will find at its epicenter is pride. We talked this morning in the Sunday school class that I'm teaching that every time we sin, be it in word, deed, thought, action, motive, 
There is a war that is being waged to see who is the sovereign. You, me, or Yahweh? Who is the sovereign? Every time we sin, it's a war for sovereignty. Why? Because pride sits at the, at the root of all sin. Every expression of sin has at its epicenter or its root the pride or the sin of pride. The Bible is replete with passages that demonstrate the ugliness of pride in the human heart. As a matter of fact, it's pride that incites the wrath of God back in Romans chapter 1. Turn, turn the page back a couple of pages there. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There's our problem again, by the way. The unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We suppress the truth in pride. Why? Because the truth resizes us. The truth reshapes us. The truth redefines us. The truth confronts me with the reality that God is God and I am not. And so men in their sin, in their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Suppress it. Pride. Instead of submitting ourselves to God's truth and humility, we seek to put ourselves above it. To enthrone ourselves above it. Paul says in verse 21, if you're just following along there, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor gave thanks to him. Not giving thanks. What is that? Prideful. Arrogant. We don't thank someone for what we think we did on our own. And then Paul gives us this absolutely crushing indictment here. The downward spiral of this sin. Romans 1.25 and the following, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie worse than served created things rather than the creator. You see, haughtiness and boasting, Paul says, are wiped off the table if justification is by faith and faith alone. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul is dealing with the pride of the irreligious Gentiles. Well, in chapter 2, in chapter 2, we see even more dangerously how pride distorts the view of the religious. I don't, I, don't, I don't mean religious to be synonymous with true believer necessarily, but just as truth blinds the non-believer, the irreligious, truth also blinds the eyes of the religious. It blinds them to thinking wrongly about their relationship with God. You see, the Jews thought they were right before God because of their national heritage as God's chosen people, because of their circumcision, and because of their feeble attempts to obey the law. You see, they boasted in these things. We, we are God's people. If God smiles on anyone, he smiles on us. We do that at times, do we not? It may not come off our lips, but it certainly exists in our hearts. Jews were proud of what they thought they contributed to their relationship with God. And so look at chapter 2, verse 23. Paul says this. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. You who think you can keep it, you who think you can add something to your salvation, 
dishonor the law because you're lawbreakers. We're all lawbreakers by nature. The greatest lie that the world has ever known, friends, mark it down, is that sinful man can somehow make himself acceptable to God on his own. The greatest lie the world has ever known is that sinners can make themselves right with God on their own. And that comes in a myriad of different of, of flavors and colors and smells and varieties and species of thought. You see, those who think they're righteous already see no need for the justifying grace of God. This is what Luther and the Reformers began to see in the Roman Catholic Church. Is that because you think that righteousness is just infused and there's already the spark of it there or something of it already exists there, you see no need for the justifying work of Christ alone on your behalf. We're proud of what we think we accomplish on our own. Jesus' parable of the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. Turn over to Luke chapter 18 for a second. Luke chapter 18. Verses 9 through 14. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And what Jesus does in this text is he illustrates the difference in the heart of a self-righteous boaster and the heart of a humble, Christ-needing sinner. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Pause. That is pandemic to the human nature. That sentence right there describes the Genesis 3 world in which we live. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and as such treated others with contempt. Here's the parable, or here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Here's what I do. Here's my laundry list of things that I want to add to faith. I fast twice a week. I give tithes out of all that I get. But the tax collector, on the other hand, standing from afar, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful. God, be merciful to a sinner like me. Have mercy on me. I tell you, this man went down to his house, here's the word, justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, He who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the tax collector understood that he had nothing to offer God. He had a spiritually bankrupt account. He knew that he could never measure up to God's righteous standard. And so, as a result, he was profoundly humbled by his need for grace. The Puritan Thomas Watson said this, We are never more precious in God's eyes than when we are lepers in our own eyes. We're never more precious in God's eyes than when we're lepers in God's eyes. Now, you would have needed to read, read Watson in his context, in his full context, to, to 
understand, so let me offer a balancing statement here. How, how would you reconcile, uh, reconcile Watson's statement of viewing yourself as a, as a leper uh, when Paul says that we've been seated with Christ and the heavenlies were co-heirs with Christ and, and we're adopted children? He's talking about the understanding of what sin does to the human nature. And until we see how insidious sin really is, until we see and understand something of the cosmic treason of our sin, we can never please God. One of the glorious implications of the doctrine of justification by faith alone is that it leaves us with nothing left to boast in. It strips away our pride. It's a work of God completely, entirely, from beginning to end that should profoundly humble us. James Montgomery Boyce said this. He said, if pride is the greatest of all sins and God's plan of salvation does not destroy pride, rooting it up, casting it out, and dusting off the place where it stood, then God's plan is not a good plan. Let that settle in for a moment. God's plan of salvation by justification, by faith alone, excludes boasting. Number two on your outline. The doctrine of justification by faith alone not only strips us of our pride, but secondly, it frees us from our striving. It frees us from our striving. Look at verse 28, back to Romans chapter 3. You hear that sound? I love that sound. It's the sound of Bible pages turning. How does a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your what? Amen. The doctrine of justification by faith alone frees us from our striving. Look at verse 28, chapter 3. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see, not only does the doctrine of justification by faith alone strip us of our pride, but it's also an incredibly freeing doctrine. It means that we don't have to strive and strive and strive our whole lives futilely trying to earn God's favor. I mean, there are people, and maybe that categorized you before, you before you were genuinely converted, before God reached in and regenerated your lifeless, dead, cold heart to new life, that you thought somehow, and maybe some of you sitting here this morning who think that somehow you're going to please and appease God by your constant striving and striving and striving and working and working and working. But yet at the same time, just like Luther, you feel conflicted in your heart because you realize that no matter how much you strive, no matter how much you work, it never seems to be enough. Do you know why it never seems to be enough? Because it's never going to be enough. That's why we need an alien righteousness. Because all of our striving, piled up in a pile, from life's first breath to life's final breath, could never be enough. If we'd only sinned once, a lifetime of striving would never be enough to pay our sin debt. But thankfully, Jesus uttered these words, Come to me, all you who labor, or 
Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, burdened under the weight of your sin, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus said, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. and You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Greek word weary there that Jesus uttered carries the idea of working to the point of utter exhaustion. Striving to earn God's favor will do nothing but press you up against the wall of utter exhaustion. Jesus calls himself, calls to himself, rather, everyone who's exhausted from trying to, to find and, plea, and, and, and please and appease God in his own strength to find rest in him. He invites the person who's wearied from his vain search for truth through human wisdom, who's exhausted from trying to earn his own salvation, and who has despaired of trying to achieve God's standard of righteousness by his own efforts to come and cast themselves upon him. I'm reminded of the lyrics to the song that we sing oftentimes in in Christ alone. These words, what heights of love, what, what, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings, what? Cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. That's where striving cease. It isn't just good news for the person who hasn't yet come to faith in Christ. This is good news for you, Christian, because how often do we momentarily forget that justification is by faith alone and instead think, what do I have to do to earn his favor today? I mean, we are ingrained with that thought from life's first breath, right? I mean, think about this. As, as youngsters in sports, we begin to learn and to figure out what we have to do to please coach so that we get what? Playing time, right? On game day, we get playing time. We're not riding the pine. So I learn what I have to do to please coach. And we carry that with us through life and we step into the workplace and we say, well, I know what I got to do to please coach. What do I have to do to please you, boss? And we begin to learn this kind of system of hoops that we got to jump through. And we learn that we do this, we do that, we speak this way, we assimilate the vocabulary, the culture of, of the business, and we dress this way, and we, we go to these types of places. Here are the things that we do in this business culture. Here is the way that I please boss. And then do you know what we do? We walk right in, even genuinely converted to the Christian life, and we say, hey, I know what i got to do for coach, and I know what i got to do for my boss. What do I have to do for you? How can I please you? You see, the gospel answers that question. The gospel answers that question. The gospel tells us that we please God because of the righteousness that he has imputed to our otherwise bankrupt accounts. That when when God, the king and creator, the sovereign one of the universe, looks at one of us, his children, he sees us robed in the righteousness of Christ covered in the shed blood of Jesus for us. That's pleasing to him. We don't jump through hoops to get God's favor. The gospel tells us that because of Christ, found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, I already am pleasing. I'm pleasing on the behalf uh, of Jesus, on behalf of what he has done for for me. We're going to move relatively quick here. So track, track with me. I want to give you a handful of truths 
about justification by faith alone that I, I hope will encourage your souls and that it will stir the affections of your heart. Let me point you back to my notes. They'll be online in a handful of days because I have much more to say in each of these points that I'm going to have time to deliver to you in the few minutes that we have left. And so write down the main thought uh, and then uh, you can get my notes or we can talk about it later. Okay? A handful of thoughts. That's preacher talk for seven. Okay? Justification by faith alone. This is number one. Magnifies the grace of God. Justification by faith alone magnifies the grace of God, and that's a really good thing. That's a really good thing. Write down next to that Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Titus 3, 4 through 7. Paul writes to Titus and he says, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of our God and our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he, God, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, there's our word again, by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justification by faith alone magnifies, makes much of, extols, raises high, shines the spotlight on the grace of God. Number two, justification by faith alone rightly directs all glory to God alone. The doctrine of justification by faith alone rightly directs all glory to God alone. We know that God is jealous for his glory, right? Isaiah 42.8. Because salvation is a work of God from beginning to end, he gets the glory as the giver of all good things. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Which, interestingly enough, is one of the indictments made against those in Romans chapter 1, making images in the likeness of creatures. Justification by faith alone rightly directs all glory to God alone. He'll give it to no other. Third, we're not justified because of our faith. We're not justified because of our faith. Now, some heads just came up there. Underline the word because. We're not justified because of our faith. This bears just a little bit of explanation here. It's important to understand that we're justified by or through our faith and not because of our faith. In other words, your faith is not your righteousness. Christ is your righteousness. Faith is simply the instrument by which the righteousness of God in Christ becomes ours. There's a critical distinction there. Okay, you're not justified because you have faith. You're justified by your faith or through your faith. You might think of it in terms of faith being the hand that receives God's grace. Let me paint the picture for you in a couple other ways here. Any of you ever been snorkeling? Raise a hand. Most of you like to have feet firmly attached to terra firma, it looks like. You don't, you don't want to be in the water. But we all know what a snorkel is, right? 
You've been snorkeling. You know that the snorkel is only an instrument. You don't breathe the snorkel. Okay? You don't breathe the snorkel. You breathe air through the snorkel. Or think about it this way. Think about the coupling or the link that attaches two train cars together. That coupling or that linkage has no power of its own. The engine provides all the power, and the coupling connects the train car to the power of the engine. You see, there's a critical distinction. We're justified not because of our faith, but by or through our faith. Number four, justification by faith alone changes your legal status before God. Remember I said that, that justification is a courtroom term. It's a legal term. Matter of fact, you, you'll, you'll see this if you, if you read a lot of Christian literature. You'll see the term forensic righteousness. Okay? This means a legal, a legal righteousness. Justification by faith alone changes your legal status before God. Once I was guilty, now I'm declared righteous through Christ's effectual work on the cross for me. Next. Justification is more than just forgiveness. Justification is more than just forgiveness. Justification goes beyond forgiveness. Not only are we forgiven because of Christ, but God also declares us righteous because of Christ. Okay? Justification is a change in my, in my legal status. It includes forgiveness, but it's more than just forgiveness. Next. We're not justified by good works. We're not justified by good works. But if we do not do good works, or if good works are not evident in our life, then we are not justified. That's important. We're not justified by our good works. That's the whole argument that Paul is making in the text here. That, that, that God's plan of redemption, God's salvific plan is being displayed apart from works of the law. We're not justified by our good works, but at the same time, or by the same token, if we do not do good works, if they're not evident in our life, then it is evidence that we are not justified to begin with. You see, just as, it, as it's impossible to have an encounter with a Mack truck, and not be forever changed? Like, think about it, okay? I mean, if we, if, we, if we get in our cars, Lord forbid that it happens, and we pull out into the intersection of King's Highway and Mount Auburn, and we get plowed by a Mack truck, it will forever change your life. In some way, shape, or form. And just as it is impossible to have a personal encounter with a Mack truck and not be forever changed, so it is also impossible to have an encounter with the living God of the world and not be forever changed. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. You won't find that word in your Bible. A person is in Christ or a person is in Adam. A person is saved or a person is not saved. A person is justified or a person is not justified. Good works, though they don't save us, prove the validity or the genuineness of the salvation that we indeed possess. Next, and last here, justification by faith should motivate us to personal holiness. It should motivate us to personal holiness. There's a story from the Civil War days of a northerner 
who went to a slave auction and he purchased a young slave girl. And as the one who purchased and the young slave girl walked away from the auction, the man turned to the young girl and said, you're free. You're free. With amazement, she looked at him and she said, what do you mean that I'm free? He said, you're free. She said, free to do what? He said, free to do whatever you want, to go wherever you want, to say whatever you say, and to be whatever you want to be. Do you know what this young girl turned and said to this man? Sir, if that is the case, then I will go with you. Then I will go with you. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, where Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us because we have concluded this. This is the conclusion that we've come to, that one, the Lord Jesus Christ, has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He frees us. He frees us to please him, to honor him, to extol him, to magnify him, to glorify him. And we look at him and say, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. John Murray says this, nothing makes God's service more impossible than guilt. And that is one of the things that is erased in our justification. The guilt of our sin is wiped away. Jesus became the guilty party for me. And so now I'm free to please him. For the grace of God has appeared. It brings salvation for all people. It teaches us or it trains us to renounce or to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait, which is what we're doing, as we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Justification by faith alone should motivate each and every one of us who are, who are truly believers to personal holiness. Let me give you just this last point. Justification by faith alone. Number three on your outline is this. Has always been God's eternal plan of salvation. Paul even says that the, that the prophets spoke of it. The prophets pointed to it. God hasn't changed his mind on, on how he's saving people. Some through the law, some through justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone has always been God's eternal plan for salvation. Look at verses 29 through 31. We'll wrap up here. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. And he saves us in one way. He will justify, declare righteous, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow this law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In other words, what Paul is saying here is there aren't two different groups of people who are being saved in two different ways. There's one plan of salvation. It's justification by faith alone through Christ alone. The cross has always been God's plan A. Listen to this verse here as we land the plane. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. He says, to me, 
Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And here's here's the kicker here. This was according to the eternal purpose that has been realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Justification by faith alone has always been God's eternal plan of salvation. It's always been plan A. God has not wavered. But what does this all mean? Well, regardless of the depth of your sin, God's grace is deeper. Praise the Lord that we don't stand before him on the basis of our own sin-marred record. Praise the Lord that while we, all like sheep, had gone astray, each turning to his own way, that the Lord laid upon him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. You see, the gospel message isn't, here's what God commands. The gospel message is that God commands, and he has given us what he commands in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me let Jerry Bridges have the final word this morning. As we come to Christ, then empty-handed, claiming no merit of our own, but clinging by faith to his blood and righteousness, then we're justified. We pass immediately from a state of condemnation and spiritual death to a state of pardon, acceptance, and sure hope of eternal life. Our sins are blotted out and we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In our standing before God, we will never be more righteous even in heaven than we are the day that we trusted Jesus or are right now. Obviously, in our daily experience, we fall short of the perfect righteousness that God requires, but because God has imputed to us the perfect righteousness of his Son, he now sees us as being righteous, just as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. And all God's people said, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this doctrine that Luther and other reformers, but even beyond that, many faithful pastors, teachers, theologians, Sunday school teachers, church members have have fought for throughout redemptive history. God, this is no trivial matter. This doctrine is of pinnacle importance. God, I pray that you would help us to see that and that the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it would free us from our pride, it would free us from all our vain striving God, and that also, also we would be reminded uh, that your plan has always and will always be the same. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.